Welcome back to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We are in season three. Three years, 65 episodes later, and growing our reach every episode. Thanks to listeners like you. You can help ensure the vital messages and insights around rewilding reach more people by visiting rewilding.org and making a tax-deductible contribution of any size. In any case, I want to thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. Your support means the world. Today I have the privilege of talking with Chris Tucker, author of A Planet of Three Billion, about how we cannot talk about rewilding without talking about population. And there really is a constructive way to have this historically difficult conversation in a way that honors everyone involved. It might seem too good to be true, but give this episode a listen and you might just walk away feeling a whole lot better about the future of the work that must be done to bring balance back to our planet. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Chris Tucker is chairman of the American Geographical Society and serves on the boards of the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation and the Open Geospatial Consortium. He's the author of A Planet of Three Billion, Mapping Humanity's Long History of Ecological Destruction and Finding Our Way to a Resilient Future. Today we explore the most productive way to talk about how to ethically and responsibly lower global human population. Because without dealing with bringing human population into balance with what the Earth is capable of supporting, we can't fully accomplish the rewilding work it will take to restore and protect all life on this planet. Vickley, a lot of these conversations end up talking about overpopulation and population control policies. And I believe that that ends up in the most kind of retrograde, unproductive space um, really quickly when it's the wrong place to start and it's the wrong place to finish. Um, You know, where I started with this was a quarter century ago, literally 25 years ago uh, uh, this year. Um, I was at the inaugural lecture of Columbia's Earth Institute. I happened to be at Columbia as a student, worked in the provost's office that launched the Earth Institute. And I sat there and listened to um, Joel Cohen give uh, a lecture called How Many People Can the Earth Support, which happened to be the title of the book he had released that year. And uh, I was fascinated, right? Never met the guy, never even, frankly, heard of the guy. Um, but you realize that's really the most profound and important question uh, that we need to ask ourselves about uh, uh, our, our planet and our species. Um, but yet he, he really didn't have an answer <laughs> that I found satisfying. Um, so, you know, I went on about my life and finished my degrees and got a job and tried to become a productive contributor to society. But that, that big question always nagged me. Um, how many people can the engineers support? Like, there's got to be actual ways to calculate this. And indeed, many people were out there trying to throw their hat in the ring um, to, 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 to figure that out. And it, it took me probably 15 to 20 years before kind of the, the work I'd done in the field of geography and geospatial 
uh, tools, remote sensing, satellites, this, that, and the other, uh, made me realize that what was really missing from his analysis was uh, geography and, frankly, history, right? Not only was his kind of form of analysis a historical, it was a geographical. Uh, we do live on a finite planet. Um, our finite planet is comprised of these eco regions that are unique uh, geographic uh, regions um, with unique flora and fauna, singular flows of water, climate, terrain. That you know, once you pave it, once you eliminate it, once you burden it uh, with with waste. It is not compensated for by some other eco region that kind of looks like it's somewhere else on the planet, right? You have undermined a yeah. unique eco region that provides unique ecosystem goods and services. And so, you know, when I started putting the pieces together for myself, I realized, okay, there's many people talking about how many people can near support with their own formulation. And I just had to go at it myself to satisfy my own particular. Uh, curiosities about this. And, you know, when I got to it, you know, my optimistic number is 3 billion. And you look at that and you say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, even when he was given that lecture in the mid 90s, it was in the mid 5 billions, right? So we had already yeah. overshot our Earth carrying capacity by deleting, right, resources on the surface of the Earth uh, and then burdening what's left with uh, persistent accumulating wastes, right? Um, and so you look at that and it's very concerning, but then you also realize there's this whole other literature and a whole other discussion about, you know, economic development, women's empowerment and, uh, uh, what that means for fertility and all of these boogeymen just kind of fall away. Like I don't have to talk about one child policy and the inhumane and unethical approaches that various states, whether during British colonial era or in China or, or what have you. I don't have to talk about that because every geography where women have been empowered, educated, integrated in the workforce and have access to family planning technologies, the fertility curve bends and oftentimes goes to below replacement value fertility. So you sit there and you realize like all of these discussions about overpopulation are historically pretty racist and jingoistic and eugenicist in their origin because nobody, uh, you know, maybe this is touchy for your listeners, but you know, nobody ever takes a picture of like a PGA tournament with a whole bunch of white people crowded in together and say, oh, my God, there's too many people on the planet. But they sure do zoom in on a big a big crowd of black or brown people in some city and say, oh, my God, there's too many people on the planet. Right. And so that's just the nature, the origin of a lot of this debate, even if people were right in their assessment that there's too many people on the planet. Right. They're, the Earth can't support that many people. The whole framing of it was wrong. And then. Because of this kind of paternalistic, eugenicist, um, racist, you know, uh, origins of the concern, the, the the pathway to resolving it was always this paternalistic kind of the population policy approach. Not realizing, I think, in the fifties, nineteen fifties through the nineteen seventies, the the power of empowering strategies. Um, and, you know, again, if we just uh, uh, empower, educate, integrate into the workforce. Um, and provide access to family planning technologies for all women on the planet, this would resolve itself. And, and that's really kind of the crux of the book. And what's funny, I think, is when I give my, you know, my big lectures, my big talks with all my maps and my PowerPoint, you can feel the tension in the room until I get, get to the fact that it can be resolved through women's empowerment. And then you just get like a round of, of, of applause and like cheering, you know, and, and it's just nobody knew. It's not in the 
in the, the, you know, the popular mind. And I think that's the biggest problem we've had. Are people really having those old discussions still Absolutely. about overpopulation? Okay, Absolutely. they are. And But I believe it's a generational thing. And I, and I actually don't try to um, impute malice to a lot of it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of older generations, you know, the language you learned when you were young, you use it even if it doesn't necessarily fit your new your new view of the world. Um, you know, we all fall back on old habits and old language. Um, but I'll say, you know, I gave some talks at the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society and, you know, some of their some of their older patrons would come and I appreciate them showing up. Um, but I would get questions from, you know, old British, you know, folks in their 70s and 80s. And they say, you know, but don't we need population policy to keep those people from, you know, breeding mm. like animals? And, no. you're like, and you're like, well, dude, I don't think you <laughs> meant to phrase it that way. But in some cases they do. And that's part of the problem, right? Um, because there is a history of that. And if I were someone, you know, from another part of the world, you know, where the the total fertility rate is, is you know, higher, and, and I hear somebody come in and start talking about population and they're white, you know, from the U.S. or the U.K. or, <laughs> or Europe, I, I, I'm sure I would squint my eyes and, and listen very carefully about the words coming out of their mouths um, because it, it is part of the history of this whole thing. And, you know, it's just, you know, a lot of people say, Chris, don't write this book. Don't go out the me- with that message. You, you're going to end up being one of those people. And I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to say, but I'm not one of those people. Read the damn book. Um, and it really does come down to we have exceeded our planet's long term ecological carrying capacity. Every additional person we add to the planet incurs further ecological debt that will take generations to pay down, but we can't even pay it down until we bring the population down, right, to our long-term ecological carrying capacity. And I'm more than happy to debate, is it 3 billion, is it 4, is it 5? I've I've dared anybody to try to tell me it's 7.7 or higher, and nobody's even tried. Like even the people that, you know, want to try, they don't even try because they know they can't defend it. And so, you know, give or take a billion, we've got a long road to hoe on this issue. But again, small changes in complex systems can lead to profound, profound positive change. We still, we still at large do not know how to talk about it in a way that I think that you have come up with to talk about it so that people are more cheering at the end of what we have a discussion about or that we even get to have one. A right. civil one. I sense that you've come up with a way for to help all of us have a conversation about this. I do like to point out that not a single original thought in my book. You know, a lot of what I've done, it's kind of on the shoulders of giants, as they say, right? You know, I've there's a uh, variety of conversations that have already ex- uh, uh, occurred out there. There's a variety of literatures that already exist out there that, um, when strung together make your case for you. But for some reason, they have been completely uh, apart from each other, whether balkanized in different academic disciplines or in different, you know, professional, uh, uh, you know, worldviews. And and stringing them together was really the art of the book. When I took the biogeographical lens, mm-hmm. you know, you, you start with what is the world, right? I say, how many people can the earth support? You go, well, what, what, what do you mean by the earth? And so, I was really pleased um, that about the time I was really in earnest um, kind of writing my book, 
there was uh, the, the launch of the uh, 2017 Ecoregions data set. And that's really a, uh, a 40, 50 year body of, of knowledge that's been put together by academics and practitioners to define these coherent uh, biogeographical regions. And when it la launched in 2017, that gave me what I needed. It was the first one really at global scale to define the entire planet. Um, mm. Separate from it, unfortunately, is another marine ecoregions data set. And I think all of us understand, right, it's not just the terrestrial Earth, but it's our mm -hmm. oceans um, and how they interact together. Um, so that actually doesn't quite make it into my book the same way as it probably would if I wrote my book today. But you get these coherent biogeographical regions. And I think we all understand, like when we talk about the half Earth, we need to set aside half the Earth. I have this probably little cheeky section in my book where I go, well, what do you mean by half? Right. I mean, if I mm -hmm. take an eco region and I delete the half on the east side of the eco region, does it function at 50 percent? Right. Or, or if I do a major highway east-west through an eco-region and it cuts off all north-south migratory paths for all the animals, does it still function at 99% even since I only deleted 1% for the road? And it turns out it's much more complicated than that. And I, and I don't mean that to um, somehow undermine E.O. Wilson's work and the half-earth uh, thesis and the, the nature needs half folks, because I think Honestly, I'm somebody that thinks it probably needs to be just a bit more than half, personally. Mm. Um, but it is—it's very complicated. And if you don't look at how those ecoregions function themselves, then you're not having an honest conversation about how many people can the Earth support. So you know, a lot of what's going on in these rudimentary maps is go well. You know, here's where the people are, and here's where nature still is. We still have about 50%, so we're good. And I go, well, I don't know. Let's look at the microdynamics at that region. And, you know, just because it's not paved doesn't mean it's actually functioning at 50 percent because it probably isn't. And and that's where I think the inspiration of Half Earth, Half Earth is really important. But we still have a long way to go. So a lot of what I did in the middle of my book, when you look at those maps at, at continent scale, right, is I took five layers, five, five, six basic layers. You know, they're urbanized areas, places where we pack a bunch of people in and pave, pave a bunch of ground to to put human habitat in all those primary roads. Um, you know, think major highways, not even the secondary roads, because if I had the, all the minor roads, the whole map would be black at that global scale. Right. Um, you have the industry, uh, the, the intensively agricultural, uh, intensive agriculture regions, which take over surprisingly huge swaths of, of mm -hmm. our continents. Um Toxic sites and then ocean dead zones kind of on a coastal, the coastal dead zones based on um, agricultural and urban effluence. Um, and when you put that there, it's bigger than just where are the people, right? And you realize that the burden we have on our planet is massive when that's only five layers. I mean, I can't even map all of the endocrine disruptors. You know, I don't even put in all the full acidification of the ocean because you just literally can't fit all of it on one static colorized map on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. Carto cartography has its limits. You know, people need to kind of understand the full human footprint and what does it mean to those ecoregions? Because it's those ecoregions from which we evolved and that sustain us as a species. I mean, there's no amount of like modernist worldview that, you know, somehow, you know, severs that fundamental uh, relationship that we have with the natural earth that supports us. 
Yeah. So full agreement on that. It's a tricky, tricky situation. And I think that the people that you want in the room with you when you're working on things like that are people who have been on the ground and know really what's there. Not only map lines of what's protected, what's not, what's degraded, what needs to be recovered, but the people who live there, like who are going to be affected by this in one way or another <laughs> going forward, right? Yeah, I mean, and the rewilding dimension, right, is you're dealing face on with the people who are living there, right? Because if there's no one living there, it's kind of wild, <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, if there's yeah. nobody exploiting that land industrially, if there's nobody making their living off that land, if there's nobody living there, you know, by definition, it's kind of wild. And I think, you know, you have fundamentally different regional challenges in these discussions because of the political economy and the nature of kind of the history of land administration, right? Um, the United States, uh, uh, it's not like no one lived in the United States before the colonizers showed up, right? It's just that there wasn't the same notion of private land rights uh, and cadaster, you know, it wasn't broken down into parcels. Um, mm -hmm. So you actually had a large, robust uh, indigenous population that lived with the land. In some cases, you know, I think Charles C. Mann makes a good case that they probably lived heavier on the land than a lot of people think. But there's it's a night and day comparison yeah. to, to what we've done right uh, in coming in. And so, you know, you have parts of the world where these wildernesses are never chopped into parcels in kind of a Hernando de Soto, you know, private property <laughs> rights kind of regime, which we all understand, like that is the basis of capitalism. We do need that if you're going to have economic growth, if you're going to bring people out of poverty. But then you do need to have bright lines and say, no, the entire natural earth isn't just here for human exploitation for economic growth, because if it is, that will undermine the natural capital that that underpins capitalism, right? Um, so you actually have to take the finite earth into account. And in the United States, I mean, by what they called the closing of the frontier sometime in the 1890s, right? We had already gone from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast and handed it out to somebody, um, or it was left as some form of public land. But there was really no wilderness left in the United States. Um, and, and that was a that was a, a concept, you know, that that we have to think critically about and say, was that concept correct? I mean, it may have been useful. It may have served like a manifest destiny worldview. But but was it correct in terms of the long term sustainability of our society and our planet? And I would argue, no, <laughs> we need to rethink some of these things. And I think when people are talking about the rights of rivers, you know, the rights of natural features. Um, there's a lot of really powerful, useful thinking that, frankly, five years ago, I would have thought was hokey. You know, mm -hmm. um, the notion that New Zealanders are fighting for the rights of a river as a as, you know, equal to man. And I'm like, that's crazy. And then the more you delve into it, you're like, these guys are really onto something. I mean, yeah. it's, they've, they've thought it through and the law actually makes sense. And this deals with a lot of the externalities that capital capitalism and first world land administration don't deal with well, the market failures that we don't deal with well, even though in theory, our law is a response to market failures, right? So, um, but there's other parts of the world, you know, like the Amazon, unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately, right, it, it isn't totally ensconced in that land administration worldview, but increasingly a Bolsonaro 
is saying, yeah, you know, those Americans did something right. Let's just chop up the whole Amazon into, you know, whatever and parcel it out and it'll all be good. And we, we know where that goes, right? Um, and then, you know, former Soviet Union, right? There's large tracts of public land because it was all owned by the state. Not arguing for communism, not arguing for <laughs> communism, but it leaves you in a moment in history where you go, well, these are essential eco-regions. These are essential ecosystem goods and services. What is their disposition? And you go, well, they really haven't been parceled out and paved. You go, ah, okay, well, there's an opportunity for us there to rewild. So I think we have to look in terms of what are the easy opportunities to rewild, where are the easy opportunities to move people off the land or to refactor their their posture on the land so it's less burdensome. Um, and then, we, you know, we need to look long and hard at some of the more entrenched, institutionalized land management. I mean, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, beautiful neighborhood, wonderful neighbors, beautiful houses. Every single of yeah. anything within my view has been managed and there's no such thing as wilderness, right? And it's just gone. There's, and, and to be like, oh, there's a bird. Therefore, we have wilderness like that's It's a ridiculous <laughs> statement only made by ignorant people. Um, and so, you know, you really need to think long and hard, like where are the opportunities to rewild? And then what are things, you know, like only an hour from me, you know, 20 years ago were farms that are now, you know, 4,500 units of tract housing. Um, yeah. and, and only one gen, maybe two generations before that, it wasn't a farm. It was a forest. And, and so you need to think about that process of land transfiguration, transmogrification, and how you can say, okay, you know, whether I'm nature conservancy or whoever doing environmental easements, how can I take those things off the books so that inexorable process of, of parceling land and paving it doesn't happen to essential parts of the planet? But, but again, back to population, right? Um, to do that in the face of 80 million additional people, 10 New York cities of additional people added to the planet every single year, that's that's a folly, right? Um, and yeah. so while I'm a huge fan of rewilding, um, rewilding, I believe, has common cause with any um, ethical and just approach to bending the global population curve. And I say that the same to my friends in the, in the, in the climate change, in the climate change community, right? Yeah. Yes. We need to, you know, reduce how many parts per million of carbon are in the atmosphere and, you know, stop releasing methane. Um, but to do that in the face of 80 million new additional people on the planet every year, um, again, it's, it's a bit of folly. You're listening to the rewilding earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I wanted to kind of pull back a little bit and ask you about something on your jacket of the book. It says women educated, empowered, integrated into the workforce with access to family planning technologies hold the key to our ecological salvation. And we've heard this. I think a lot of people, everybody listening surely has heard that. And if not, now you have. But what I would really love to do is have someone go on record and say 
what does that future look like? What does a slice of life actually look like? I think that we can't really get somewhere if we can't envision what that looks like. And we've never really gone on this show past the point of we need to do something about this. And this is one of the things we need to right. do to accomplish it. But I want to know what you think the world looks like in such a world where we've really tackled this problem sometime in the future and women are educated, empowered, integrated and access to family planning technology. What's it look like? People talk about runaway population growth. Or for most people talk about overpopulation. Again, a term I hate. You know, don't tell me we're overpopulated unless you first tell me what the what the you know uh, long-term ecological carrying capacity of the planet is. Once you tell me that number, then I'll go. Well, turns out we've exceeded that number, right? Call it overpopulation, call it ecological overshoot, call it what you will. Um, but once you've determined that number, right, then we need to get down to that other. Otherwise, we're just kind of engaging in a complete and utter abdication of ethical action, right? What I yeah. what I call in one of one of my uh, appendices, I call it a, a, a planetary ethics, right? Um, so you know, I don't like to abdicate my responsibility on things. I like to kind of treat them uh, kind of head on. Um, and in that case, that means we actually need to bring the total fertility rate below replacement value. So if you haven't heard of TFR, uh, I hate it. It's a obtuse demographics term that mm -hmm. even demographers kind of argue over. And it, it's got all these weird statistical uh, artifacts in it that make it hard to understand. But it's the general concept of, right, you know, you replace yourself when you and your wife have two children, right? Um, when they have the children matters, when you start having children matters, et cetera. Um, but the, the general notion is somewhere around a TFR of 2.1 is replacement value. If we were living at 2.1, we would never get more people on the planet. But we are adding 80 million every year to the planet because right now we're a little north of 2.4. And every year that total fertility rate declines, right? Um, the problem is the base keeps getting bigger. So the number key of new people keeps kind of looking about the same. That's why I call it runaway, right? Um, but the truth is, in a lot of countries, in Japan and Thailand, in the U.S. and Europe without immigration, we're below replacement value fertility. We're below 2.1. And in a lot of urban areas, you're below 1.5. There's some areas, you know, you'll read newspaper articles about how we're losing children from the cities. And we have these aging cities because total fertility rate in some cities is like 1.3. So it turns out that, you know, while many people have looked at the 20th century and said the hallmark of modern progress is, you know, population growth, right? Because people aren't dying in childbirth and people are living longer. It turns out the hallmark of modern, you know, progress turned out to be that we have declining population. It's just as William Gibson, you know, always said, the, the sci-fi author, you know, the future's already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. You know, we already have many places on the planet that are decreasing their population within the area with that total fertility rate. So the question is, how can we bring the global total fertility rate below replacement value? And so kind of doing some math, the call that I've got out there that I, you'll see in an article coming out um, soon is uh, trying to reach a total fertility rate of 1.5 by 2030. If by 2030, we brought the total fertility rate below 2.1 down to 1.5, we wouldn't even hit 9 billion. And every year we would be decreasing the number of people on the planet. And sometime soon after 2100, we would be somewhere around 3 billion, right? Give or take plus these are big numbers, but 
you know, that's where you would get to. And so you sit there and say, well, first you got to have your targets, right? This is a little tongue in cheek. Not really, though. I'm throwing some sharp elbows. Like the United Nations has a lot of great intentions and they have the sustainable development goals and they want to empower women and they want to bring people up into the global middle class out of poverty. They want to save the planet and the environment. They want to do all these things, but they're doing them out of sequence <laughs> uh, by, by growing the global middle class, bringing people out of poverty without bending the global population curve, you're ensuring ecological annihilation, right? Um, because we know yeah. that every person who enters the global middle class, their ecological footprint will be orders of magnitude bigger than you know when they're living in poverty. I don't want anyone living in poverty. It's when we have the ability to bring them out, it's immoral, it's unethical, right? But we have to look at the giant trade space. So the issue is a question of ordering and sequencing, where if we empower women, integrate them in the workforce, educate them, give them access to family planning technologies. What you end up with is small, educated, urban families, right, that are much more prosperous on average than what we have today. And to me, like, that's where you want things to go. Unfortunately, you know, without thoughtful policy interventions and whatever, you often have these generational lags, right? You'll have people that have six or eight kids, a TFR of, let's say, six or seven or eight, um, when they're out in there as subsistence farmers out in the countryside of whatever developing nation they're in. And even when they move to the city, it takes a generation before those women are educated, empowered, and only have, let's call it, a, you know, two kids, right? Um, and so that's, I think, the place where we need to pivot, where we need to invest in our women and girls now. If we invest in every woman and girl now around their education and empowerment and access to family planning, that will short circuit the entire kind of natural fertility curves that all of these demographers just kind of say, well, it's got to be this way, right? Because look at the population pyramid. It's going to be this way and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And honestly, I call bullshit on all of that. Um, the, the recent analysis by in The Lancet you know, uh, pointed out that our investment in women's education and um, access to family planning is kind of ahead of schedule. And in that sense, those U.N. estimates of where the population go, they think they won't go that high. Now, their numbers say by 2064, we'll only get to 9.7 billion, which, dude, that's that's so frightening and, and from an ecological <laughs> standpoint. What what 9.7 billion will do to the planet is should truly frighten everyone. But what they did in that study was show that there's there's all of these. um what would you call them? Sensitivities there to these factors. And so when I wrote the authors, I said, okay, have you done the analysis of how much we need to invest in women's education, girls' education, access to family planning tech in order to bring the curve to the left, right? To if this is an inevitable process and the population curve will peak and then decline anyways, why can't we just accelerate that process by being thoughtful in our policy implementation? To which I got crickets, no response. Right. And and, you know, I think that is the real discussion we need to have and look at different parts of the world, because there's no part of the world that's the same. Right. Everybody's got yeah. their own culture, their own history, their own economic imperatives, um, their own cultural commitments, you know, and that's fair. Right. That we shouldn't be looking down on anybody, but we should be building bridges to, you know, uh, our friends and colleagues in other parts of the world. Because honestly, if you've ever been to another part of the world and some of the most you know, response I've gotten are from like women in India, like tweeting out saying, you're damn right. Like women need to be empowered and that would help solve this problem. 
you know, the sensitivity of population being historically kind of this jingoistic, paternalistic, racist kind of thing is that now I'll call it the liberal impulse. And I resemble that remark. The liberal impulse is to, you know, not comment on anybody's anything on the other part of the world, just accept it for as it is. But when you go meet with your friends on the other side of the planet, you'll realize when you get in a conversation about this, there is a vast chasm between the demonstrated fertility, you know, how many kids they are having and the desired fertility. And you'll hear Melinda Gates talk about this. You'll hear all sorts of folks talk about this. And we can have a polite conversation about, you know, how much wiggle room there is there. But we know it's in the hundreds of millions of women and hundreds of millions of children born. And that accumulates over time. So when you say, what does that look like? I think it looks like a set of uh, regionally thoughtful and engaged policies around providing access, uh, equality, justice um, to women and girls, um, even though there may be some cultural, you know, barriers or, or speed bumps in, in kind of achieving that kind of positive change. And, and somebody could say, well, that's, that's a, some first world liberal, you know, talking down to people in the developing world. And I think there's ample evidence and ample data points that that's actually not true. Um, I think that's actually spoken by people who've never been to the developing mm. world and never had those conversations. But small, educated, prosperous families that are increasingly urban, that's what will tip the balance. And 1.5 TFR by 2030 is in our reach if we prioritize it. If that was our 18th sustainable development goal, <laughs> you know, that, that set, that changed how we think about the ordering and sequencing of the other 17 sustainable development goals, we would peak early, we would have an orderly decrease in human population, and it would allow us every year to say, which chunk of land would we like to responsibly rewild? Lights are going on here. How to talk about this in a way that's productive, I think you've provided the mic drop, the slam dunk. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I think there's a logical argument, and maybe I did provide the mic drop. I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. And now the hard work begins, right? Um, uh, the last thing the world needs is another middle-aged white guy talking about this subject. I used to be a, a young white guy <laughs> talking about mm-hmm. the subject, and I just keep getting older. You know, the thing we need are engaged, genuine female voices from around the world. And, you know, one of my favorite people that I've met over the course of this is Phoebe Barnard, um, who was one of the five authors in the Scientist Warning article on climate change um, in November of 2019 in, the, in bioscience, because she... Um, appears to be probably the the strongest voice out of those main authors. Remember, they had 11,000 scientists as co-signatories on this article. And it was the first time that the scientific community focused on climate change actually called out the need to stabilize population and have it decrease in an orderly, just, ethical fashion um, over time if we're going to avert climate catastrophe. And when I got her on the phone, she starts, you know, talking to me about all of her friends in Nigeria, all of her friends in, you know, uh, uh, Mozambique, you know, all these different places where she's been on the ground as a conservation biologist and saying, you know, you have no idea how strong the appetite for this sort of discussion is amongst women in these countries. And, you know, they want to be empowered. They want empowering strategies to enable them to kind of help <laughs> help this journey along, not just for themselves, but for the planet. And, you know, the thing that is missing that I think some people are trying, I'm certainly just trying to 
be an ally on this is every time I meet a woman who is providing a, a thoughtful critique just from their genuine experience, I just send them over to Phoebe. Phoebe's got a Facebook group of hundreds of women that kind of share their thoughts on this stuff. And I mean, I strongly believe, you know, again, there's, there's plenty of room for middle aged white guys from the first world like me and you who can be allies and support this, but truly empowering women means kind of supporting the networking amongst these women of common cause. Um, and, you know, that that's what I'm hoping, and it's happening fast. I mean, that's the heartening thing here is, you know, the faster we can accelerate their networking and their ability to support each other and demand support from us, you know, from us males who frankly have been the source of the problem. You know, I think I think that provides us all great hope to a positive resolution of all this. Um, uh, but, you know, we really have to think creatively about, you know, how to bring these genuine, authentic voices out of the woodwork, connecting them up and empowering them to to take us to this next phase. Chris, I so, so appreciate this. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.